Many state lawmakers had hoped the legislative session would come to an end last week, but those wishes didn't come true. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about the tremendous amount of activity that happened at the Capitol on Tuesday. We'll get multiple perspectives on the budget and whether it puts Arizona on a problem-solving track. Also, firefighter Brendan McDonough is the lone survivor of the out-of-control Yarnell Hill fire, which killed 19 of his Granite Mountain hotshot colleagues. In a new book called My Lost Brothers, McDonough recounts what led him to become a hotshot and what happened on that tragic day in 2013. Plus, what happens when Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy are thrown together to discuss the human condition and mortality? It's the latest play from Arizona Theatre Company, and I'll find out what inspired playwright Scott Carter. And comedian and actor David Cross is best known for his offbeat work on Arrested Development and his collaborations with Bob Odenkirk. I'll talk with him. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, firefighter Brendan McDonough is the lone survivor of the out-of-control Yarnell Hill fire, which killed 19 of his Granite Mountain hotshot colleagues. I'll talk with him about his new book, My Lost Brothers. McDonough recounts what led him to become a hotshot and what happened on that tragic day in 2013. Plus, what happens when Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy are thrown together to discuss the human condition and mortality? It's the latest play from Arizona Theatre Company, and I'll find out what inspired playwright Scott Carter. And comedian and actor David Cross is best known for his offbeat work on Arrested Development and his collaboration with Bob Odenkirk. I'll talk with him. We start today's program with the state budget. Majorities in the House and Senate approved a budget package early this morning. The final agreement includes some increases in funding for K-12 education, child safety, and a border strike force. There's also a tax cut targeted at small businesses in Arizona. But one of the holdups to an agreement had to do with a lack of approval for the Kids Care Child Insurance Program. In a couple of minutes, we'll hear from Republican State Representative Bob Robson. But first, I'm joined by Democratic State Senator Steve Farley. Senator Farley, good morning. Hey, good to be here. So, Steve, what does this budget package lack in your eyes? Well, number one, it lacks health care for 31,000 low-income kids, many of whom are struggling with major health issues, but none of whom have the income in their families to actually be able to get the treatment they need. Kids care is something that the federal government offers a 100% match for. It would cost the state nothing. Uh, and there's absolutely no reason given for why we would not be, be one of the other states, in fact, 49 states in the union, already cover their kids using this program. Why would we, we would want to still be the only state in the union that does not cover our kids? It's, uh, the only thing I heard was ideology, that somehow uh, we need to make a stand for the, for, for, the, for the federal debt. But the fact is, our federal taxpayers here in Arizona are now paying to subsidize other kids' health care in 49 states, and our kids get sold up the river. That's, to me, the, uh, just a huge shining uh, uh, wart on the side of this budget, and we should not be uh, praising a budget that doesn't cover those 31,000 kids. And on social media, you focused on a few Republicans who didn't step up on kids' care. So what do you think happened? Is this something where certain people are running for office and don't want to be seen voting for this because it's more money in their eyes, or they want to be seen voting against kids' insurance, so they just didn't vote at all? You'd have to ask these elected officials, but Kate Brophy McGee and Jeff Dial, who uh, have said they're champions of kids' care and have been fighting for it all along, when they had a chance to actually make it happen, they decided to take a walk. 
Uh, Kate Brophy McGee took over, uh, took off for the Senate while the vote was happening in the House, and she had some dinner over here. And Jeff Dow disappeared and came back three minutes later after the kids care vote and voted for the underlying bill without kids care on it. If you're a champion for kids care, if you really want 31,000 kids to be able to get covered, um, and then you're not there when the chips are on the table, that's a problem. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you say you want to support it. If you have an opportunity to do it and you disappear, you should be held accountable for that by the voters. Overall, are you disappointed that more lawmakers didn't view the surplus as a chance to invest more? There was concern expressed by many that, well, what if the economy goes down? Futures are showing that we're not going to have this surplus in the future. Do you think more should have been put in from the surplus? Well, particularly for K-12, uh, the governor is already crowing about a budget that he says has $180 million more in in spending for K-12. He's actually including in that figure uh, the the money that it would take to it, to fund the new enrollment in our schools and inflation. Well, on a per pupil basis, that's no that's no increase at all. It ends up being a wash for our students. And considering that we already cut another $116 million from computers and textbooks last year, and we didn't do a thing to restore any of that money, and we've cut 23% from per pupil funding for K-12 since 2008, the worst cuts in the country, and we haven't done anything about that, it, it leaves an open question as to whether or not the governor and the majority is serious about there being a step two after a proper position 123 passes. We need to do more. We've got to get past 50th in the country. We owe it to our kids and we owe it to our economy. So you said after Prop 123 passes, you think this will not hurt the support for that or might it? I, 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 the support for 123 is sort of uh, is in having trouble right now because of the actions or inactions of the governor and this legislature. If he's serious about saying that Proposition 123 is just the first step, and it absolutely has to be, it only covers inflation, uh, then he's going to have to show it at some point. And when, what better time to show that you care about education and you are committed to spending some of this over a billion dollars we have on hand in cash? You've got to spend some of that on K-12 if you're actually serious at moving forward in, in our rankings in the states and moving forward and giving our kids the, the tools they need to be able to succeed in this economy. They're being left behind every day that we wait before giving them adequate funding. And that seems, frankly, outrageous to me. And finally, Senator Farley, let's go back to politics a bit. Democrats continue to be mostly unheard in the budget process. What's going to change that? Is this going to take more of a concerted effort in the fall? Can it be changed? It's going to take a concerted effort on part of everybody to hold these folks accountable in the November elections. I think there's a real opportunity this year with a presidential election happening with a lot of these folks who some people thought were on their side, folks who they thought were moderates, uh, people like Kate Brophy McGee and Jeff Dial. When people really see what happens when the chips are on the table and, and those folks are not there for our kids, I think there are a lot of Republicans, a lot of independents, a lot of Democrats who will be voting differently in, in November, and there is a real opportunity with four more seats in the Senate uh, that the Democrats could get a chance to, to, to govern. And after all, um, why not give the Democrats a chance to govern in Arizona and the legislature because we couldn't possibly do worse than the current majority? Democratic State Senator Steve Farley. Senator Farley, thanks. Thank you. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. With me for a few minutes with his perspectives on the final budget package is State Representative Bob Robson, who is also Speaker Pro Tem. Representative Robson, good morning. Hi, welcome. Thank you. So why does this agreement make sense for Arizona? 
Well, the, the agreement makes sense because I, it, I guess in the, the times that we have to realize that we have uh, members uh, on, that have a whole mess of issues that need to be covered whenever you have a few dollars, uh, so to speak, in the bank. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's easy to, uh, to posture uh, in certain respects uh, politically uh, when people can say you can spend money here and money there. Uh, but realistically, you have to get a budget out that you get votes for. And so uh, it's easy to say no, and it's easy to it's easy it's easy to go in different directions. But uh, basically, what you have to do is come together and be able to get a product out on the uh, out of the House and the Senate. Well, how long are people willing to to wait for that? Because I know this was some of the criticism of the last session, which was very quick, and there were some people that weren't sure that that voices were heard. This was not quite the case in this session. The session has gone more than one hundred days. Ultimately, it doesn't seem like in the midst of a $9.6 billion budget that $20, $30 million, whether it's for K-12 or something else, would be that much. What do you think, um, or can you take us inside a little bit? What what caused a little bit of a delay over the couple of days that made the budget talks go into this week as opposed to ending last week? Well, you had, you had a whole best of people. Uh, on the Senate side, you had, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, Jeff Dial and uh, uh, Worsley and uh, Senator Worsley and uh, Senator Driggs and, uh, you know, and, and others, uh, basically. And then on the House side, you had uh, a, a whole group of individuals, uh, Heather Carter, Kate Brophy-McGee, uh, Regina Cobb. I'm not going to go through all the names, but uh, they, they understand that they were fighting uh, basically in the trenches for uh, K-12. Uh, and trying to correct some of the uh, deficiencies that occurred uh, when uh, when you didn't have a few dollars in the bank. Also, uh, the university funding issue. Uh, then the other the other side of the caucus was uh, basically you know going after uh, more so on the fiscal responsibility side of it, and, and uh, which, what what they perceived would be fiscally responsible. And so you're, you you have to balance out all of these factors. So uh, and, and I give Speaker Gowan a lot of credit. Uh, for recognizing that there's uh, obviously the yin and yang, <laughs> and uh, being able to be able to work through that, not just necessarily ramming something uh, through, but understanding that there are needs and uh, there are pressure valves that needed to be taken care of. And I appreciate certainly what you said about needing certain numbers to get things through. No one's going to be completely satisfied with what went on. But from your personal perspective, um, some people view spending more of the surplus as investment. Others think of it as overspending. Uh, if, you had, if you had your druthers, should there have been more put into K-12 and university? Uh, yeah. I, well, you, 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 my, my history shows that 14 years down here, I'm, I'm basically uh, dealing with the K-12 and, and university issues. Uh, just a few years ago, uh, uh, my seatmate Jeff Dial and uh, Heather Carter and and, uh, and 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 Kate Brophy McGee and Doug Coleman, uh, we walked out, uh, you know, on on, on uh, budget negotiations because we didn't feel it was they were sincere, and we were able to uh, get some things corrected. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's you know it's it's a political season as well. <laughs> we heard from Senator Farley. He uh, had very strong feelings about kids' care, and a lot of Republicans did as well. Why didn't that go anywhere? Well, you know, in the House, uh, we voted it out. Uh, we sent it over there uh, with a fairly good number. It, it's uh, there's a bill still sitting there. Uh, I don't know if it's it's dead. Basically, uh, we had hoped uh, in some cases to be able to get it on the get it on the budget. But again, you have to be able to. If it was a matter of uh, losing the budget and losing all of the things that you're fighting for, uh, and, and and trying to get this issue, you say, okay, I have to I have to fight this get fight this battle. And then I have to fight the next battle. I don't. I don't know if the kids' care issue is totally uh, uh, dead yet. A structural deficit. Governor Ducey praised the idea that this budget uh, reigns in a structural deficit. How vital do you think that is? 
Well, I, I think I think it's important to make sure that you start paying off some of your debt. So if you do go into a crisis mode again, at least you know you have uh, you can overcome some of those challenges with some of the uh, things that you made available to you previously. And final question for you: As we look ahead, I know the session is not quite done, but as we look ahead to the future and we think about a couple of the major leaders, uh, certainly Senate President Biggs and Speaker Gowan, they're running for Congress. How big a difference does leadership make when it comes down to putting a budget together, when it comes to putting a session together? And um, how do you think the two did? Do you think uh, the state could do better? Oh, I, I, <laughs> that, that, that's really, you know, to say that uh, I think it's unfair to say, because I'd always say I think we could always do better. I mean, I'm not going to put it on them uh, quite candidly, but I, I think what you, you have to do the best you can with the cards that you're basically dealt, that all the personalities that you basically have to corral and all the needs and wants that you have to uh, take care of from, you know, urban to rural to whatever. uh, It's important that uh, we recognize that those challenges uh, exist and that you try to uh, you try to deal with them. So based on how this session has gone so far, uh, would you mind giving it a grade? Uh, you know, I, I never give. I'm going to. I'm going to definitely give it a passing grade. I would. I, I would say uh, probably uh, any. Probably probably in a B, B plus range. Republican Representative Bob Robson. He's also Speaker Pro Tem. Representative Robson, thanks. Okay, thank you. Still to come on here and now, Jim Small of the Arizona Capital Times will give us more reaction to the state budget, and we'll find out what still needs to get done to end this legislative session. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Honor Health, still locally owned and not-for-profit, making healthy personal by honoring your individual needs, goals, and right to feel empowered about your health. Learn more at honorhealth.com. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. Stay with us for BBC News Hour coming today at 1. Sunny skies across the state right now. It's 92 degrees in Tucson, 91 in Casa Grande, 90 down in Yuma, and Prescott 76 and 66 in Flagstaff. Well, a special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Ross and Shirley Berg, as well as Karsten's Family Funds for their generous support in bringing programs like Here and Now and All Things Considered to KJZZ. To join the Leadership Society and impact our community every day, please visit leadership.kjzz.org. Sunny skies over Phoenix right now with 10% relative humidity. We have 94 degrees at 1120. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. We're talking about the state budget package that was agreed to early this morning at the Capitol. And with me now is Jim Small of the Arizona Capitol Times. Jim, good morning. Good morning. How much sleep did you get? Uh, I, I did. I got more sleep, I think, than my uh, reporters did, that's for sure. And you're a young man anyway, so we shouldn't worry about that too much. Uh, now, Jim, to outsiders, it seems not much may have been accomplished with those extra hours of debate. Not that much money when we consider a $9.6 billion budget. What do you make of, of the extra time? Uh, I mean, does it seem worthwhile ultimately with the package we got? Is, how different is it from what would have happened last Friday night? Uh, it, it's significant for, uh, I, I think, for K-12 public schools and, and for charter schools. I mean, that was really where the focus was uh, on in, in terms of, of what, they, what they were haggling over. They, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, they were haggling over, you know, maybe 30 or $40 million at a 
nearly $10 billion budget, uh, but but that 30 or $40 million uh, is, is important to the to the uh, folks that get it, and in this case, it is uh, public schools, and, and it was essentially designed to make sure that schools didn't, uh, didn't have their budgets cut. Uh, there were some policy changes that uh, would have had the effect of taking money away from schools, and, and this holds them harmless, holds these schools harmless for at least this year, um, and, and I'm sure it's an issue that will be addressed again next year. And this agreement just happened about 10 hours ago, so I'm not sure how much reaction we've gotten to it so far. But have you heard from from different special interest groups? Have you heard from some who may or may not be concerned about what this could mean for the Prop 123 vote? Well, and I, I think, frankly, that's one of the reasons why uh, why we saw uh, the governor's office in particular come on board um, restoring the funding for these areas. You know, all of these, there, there were basically four, four cuts, four, four things, four little pots of money that they wanted to get added back into the K-12 budget. Governor Ducey proposed three of those in his budget back in January, and they were in the draft budgets that came out uh, about a month and a half ago, and they were in the uh, the deal that was negotiated between the House, Senate, and the governor's office. It was this group of, of House Republicans, um, uh, some of Mr. Robson's colleagues, who – you know, essentially about a dozen or so, maybe 12 or 15 of them who looked at it and said, we don't like these areas. We don't want to see K-12 schools having to take a hit at the same time that they're, we're trying, we're going out and trying to tell voters to support Prop 123 and you can trust us and we can, we're going to solve these education problems. But how can we, how can we say that with a straight face when at the same time we're approving a budget and and we're working on a budget that's going to take this money away from students and, and, and away from teachers? And, and I, I think that the governor's office ended up kind of coming around to that to that same view, and they embraced that idea. And and you know I, I think that, that that was definitely done with an eye towards Proposition 123, and and what certainly seems to be uh, some pretty intense scrutiny of it from a lot of corners. And Jim, take us back a few months to the state of the states, and then a few days later when the governor put out his budget plan. Uh, how much of this budget aligned with what Governor Ducey wanted? You know, uh, we haven't gone through it line by line uh, and, and provision by provision to look at that. But I, I think in a lot of ways it's it's similar to what he wanted. I mean, he asked for a lot of money for the Department of Child Safety. Uh, there is a lot of money in here for the Department of Child Safety. I, I don't know that they got everything that, they, that the governor had asked for, but they certainly got a lot of it. Um, the K-12 provisions uh, in, in, in general, um, you know, look different now because there, a lot of those, those policy changes and those cuts aren't there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm on the whole, though, I mean, I think that from the beginning, I think that the legislators and Republican legislators and, and Governor Ducey were never really that far off, at least in terms of, of some of their spending stuff. Um, you know, one th- one place that legislators did give um, Go- Governor Ducey a win is on this, this border border task force. Um, that, that was something that uh, I think was fairly coolly received by some parts of the legislature. Uh, but but ended up being uh, it, it was it was one of the main things that Governor Ducey talked about. I know in his in his state of the state speech and and in his uh, when he when he put his budget out and 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 that is something that is funded, although not to the degree that he had called for. And Jim, one thing that generated a lot of passion was the future of kids care. Representative Robson said, as far as he knows, a bill is still sitting somewhere in the Senate. It, could that be taken up in the in the next couple of days? Oh, sure, it could be. Uh, it probably <laughs> won't be. Um, uh, you know, the the reality is that the, I think getting that thing through on the budget was probably the best chance for it to happen. Uh, that bill is sitting right now in the Senate. Uh, Senate President Andy Biggs hates kids care. He was the primary champion of of keeping it out of the budget. Uh, I. 
I have a hard time envisioning a situation in which he lets it come to the floor. Uh, I think that there's going to be an effort to try to bootstrap that bill onto another piece of legislation, but I think you're still left with the same challenges. You still have to get it past Andy Biggs, and he's the one that decides what goes to the floor for a vote and what doesn't. And so I don't know how you get around that. So finally, if kids care then is not uh, really on the docket for the future of the next couple of days, what are the important things that still need to be done? Obviously, the budget was the most. Uh, do you expect this to be done by Friday night? Uh, I, I think there's a pretty good chance of that, yeah. I think that they're really going to push hard to get out this weekend. Um, uh, I, they've got a long long day ahead of them today. I think they've, they're have they probably going to get through, you know, I'd say close to 100 bills uh, total today. Um, I think technically there's about 350 bills that are still in some sort of some some st- some stage of being alive. Most of those, uh, not all of those, are going to go forward. I think you're probably looking at about 150 to 200 bills realistically that they have to they have to deal with. Um, if they work, if they if they if they have a long day today and they work uh, into the evening and they they do the same tomorrow, I think theoretically they could they could probably be done uh, before the weekend begins. And Jim, very briefly, any of those bills of of major significance that might change things dramatically in Arizona. Uh, I, one one that is, uh, uh, you know what, I, the, the one of them that that was important and, and is now on the governor's desk actually is the uh, expanding the Supreme Court. Um, uh, that, that's something that is now sitting sitting on the governor's desk, I believe. Uh, so yeah, that that's one I, I think that has some some political and some legal implications. Um, uh, other than that, uh, you know, this hasn't been a session. The session's been defined, I think, in a lot of ways, much more by the budget um, and, and some of the, you know, the, the kids' care discussion uh, and some of this K-12 discussion, uh, more so than, than individual pieces of legislation, as, as has been the case in years past. Jim Small of the Arizona Capital Times. Jim, thanks. You're welcome. Still to come on here and now, we'll talk with Brendan McDonough. He was the lone survivor of the Granite Mountain Hotshot team from the Yarnell Hill Fire in 2013. Stay with us. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. It was June 30th, 2013. The Yarnell Hill Fire, which had been sparked by lightning, grew out of control and trapped 19 Granite Mountain hotshots from Prescott. Efforts were made to drop retardant to give them some kind of cover from the flames, but those efforts were ultimately unsuccessful, and the 19 men were killed. One member of the hotshots survived. Brendan McDonough was serving as the lookout in a separate location, but he heard the communications between his colleagues and others above the fire and heard when they stopped. McDonough writes about what happened that day and what led to him becoming a firefighter, following years of drug use and partying as a teenager. The new book is called My Lost Brothers, and he'll be appearing at Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe next Tuesday night, and he joins me. Brendan, you write a lot about moving as a kid in California, not knowing your dad well. You used and sold drugs as a teen in Prescott. What got you interested in becoming a firefighter and moving away from that kind of lifestyle? So I think it started when I was about 14, 15, and my mom had kind of noticed, like, that I needed to be doing something productive. And and she probably, I can't speak for my mother, but what I would think was, hey, he doesn't have a, a male role model. So how do I get him a male role model? And I think the Fire Explorers program that I went through, I think that was a way to give me a male role model and a career choice. And so as I learned more about firefighting, it, it seemed like I, I got worse with the drugs, which doesn't make any sense, to be honest. And I, and I can't explain it myself either. I really can't. But as I learned more about firefighting, the more involved I became with it, but then also this almost double life. 
to where I really wanted to be a firefighter, but I just could not let go of partying, you know. And as you get older, you're you're exposed to more things. In high school, I was just very open, you know, to, to trying new things and doing things, and I didn't, I didn't frown upon them too much. So when did it first start to be something that you thought you could do? I think straight out of high school, my mom helped me get enrolled into the, it's actually the Structure Academy that I went to first. And the class fills up like within an hour or two at midnight. And so we're waiting and we fill it all out. And I was still 17. So I had a, my mom had to sign a waiver so I can even do the class. And so that was kind of where my introduction to firefighting began. And one of the older gentlemen in the class, he was, uh, He's part of a IC structure system, and he kind of just was like, "Hey, you know, you like if you really want a good foot in the door for structure, this is where you start out. You start out of wildland. This is, you know, people know if you're a hotshot that you worked hard, that you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in your job, and that's that's how you build a name for yourself, a reputation. Or mm-hmm. you can, you know, go sit and and be a part of the EMS world. And and he wasn't bagging on." the the structure guys at all but I mean a lot of what they do is is EMS and I think there's only a handful of departments that are strictly fire and and I know one of them's New York City and and that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head so and it's just that sparked my interest those words that he said about you know getting to travel the country and getting to to fight fire and and have a career also it's very intriguing. I didn't get to travel much as a kid. We moved around a little bit, but it was in the same county. I was going to the same school, so it was just not a change of scenery. Yeah. But this job was like, oh man, I get to Montana, Idaho, Minnesota, you know, New Mexico, Utah, California, Washington, all over the Southwest. This to a lot of people sounds like, well, you're protecting people. You're protecting homes, you're protecting areas, and yet at the same time, you're putting your potentially your life at risk, potentially. Mm-hmm. It was more of, of wanting to serve. I looked at firefighting as closing the door to everything I'd done before, like the drugs and the partying. That was kind of, you know, once this begins, this is my new life, and this is my new purpose. And so as much as it doesn't make sense why I did it, that's kind of, I guess, my thought process when I was, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. So what was your experience with firefighting before the the tragic Yarnell Hill stuff? How, how many fires did you actually been oh. on? Did, did you feel like it was the right choice? Two and a half years, I, I was with Grand Mountain Hot Shots, and that was my first fire job. And I really, I really do feel like it was the right choice in the beginning, and... Um, the only reason why I say in the beginning is because of the impact it had on my daughter being gone all summer. And a lot of people, they think, well, you know, the mom's there. The mom's there to tell you about, you know, the dad. And me and my daughter's mother were split. So sometimes when I came home and if it wasn't my time to have her, I didn't get to have her unless it was, you know, my two days off. And so that I could go out to another fire, went see her for a month. And it's actually a conversation that I had with my superintendent and captain the beginning of 2013, mm-hmm. the year of the tragedy, was I, I, I want to fulfill this season and I want to continue to grow and maybe even one more season, but I think I need to start looking at something a little more stable mm-hmm. for, being a, for being a single dad so I could be home more for my daughter. 
Did you worry when you were fighting fires? Was that something that, did you worry about yourself? Did you worry about what would happen to your daughter if something happened to you? It was always in the back of my head, but it was something, I guess it's a, it's something that at that young age I couldn't understand and I wanted to keep back there. So it wasn't like we talked a lot about, uh, a bunch, I mean, mm. and it was, I knew the dangers of the job. And even throughout the seasons that I did, the two and a half seasons I did work, you know, the short time I did work, we'd hear about fatalities. We'd be on a fire and we'd hear about a fatality and we'd, we'd take a moment and pray for, you know, their family and we'd, you know, take a moment for them. And so it, it made it real when you're out on the line and you, you get word of something, you know, in the middle of the day or at night or in the morning, it just made it that much more real and it was an eye-opener. to the dangers of the job. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Brendan McDonough. He's the author of the new book, My Lost Brothers. It's the untold story by the Yarnell Hill Fire's lone survivor. He'll be at Changing Hands Bookstore coming up on Tuesday, May the 10th. So, Brendan, that that particular horrible afternoon when your colleagues died in this fire, can you tell us a little bit about what it felt like to be overhearing what was going on? Because there was a particular plan in place to make sure that there was a wall set up to protect your colleagues, and then the the fire acted in a way that no one expected. In Yarnell, when I had heard that, you know, my brothers are deploying their fire shelters, it's never something you want to hear, and it, it truly just just put mentally, physically, my my whole personal being into shock, and. I didn't know what to think, how to think, how to feel, and it was. It took weeks to to come out of that shock. It took a long time to to really come out of it, and it took even longer to really understand what happened. So going back to that, a lot of fear, trying to be hopeful, you know, praying to God, um, survivor's guilt. You know, one of the first things that came to my mind, you know, why am I not with them? Why am I here? Why am I not there? Why isn't someone here? Why am I the person here? So there's just a lot of things just continue to rush through my mind. And all while this is this is going on, you know, there's 100 plus or so people trying to get to them, trying to get a plan going for medical, for evacuation. So all this is going on. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people haven't heard about is, is the courage that my brothers had that day. But the men and women on that scene that came together for the purpose and, and you can't, I can't even put it into words, you know, how much willing they were to go the extra mile for their brothers. There were reports after that happened and there was speculation about whether there was anything that could have been done to prevent it. Um, looking back at it, was this nature? Did Was planning wrong? Did firefighters make any mistakes? Or was this just sort of something that got out of control? I mean, that's a million-dollar question, to be honest. And, and looking back, what I can tell you is I don't feel that there's enough information out there for, for me to be able to make a sound decision. I feel like there's more than than just one decision that, that led up to what happened or or one mistake that led up to what happened or, you know, the fact that it's a natural disaster in itself and we're fighting it, that that's just 
that's huge on its own. And is it is it the training or is it the resources? Is it the tools? Is it the technology? I think it's a combination of a lot of things that lined up that day. I don't I don't look to blame anybody about it. I just hope that we can learn from it. And I know that there are people that are continuing to look into that tragedy so we can find out new things about what happened to, on one end, continue mm-hmm. to honor my brothers, and on another end, which is very tough to swallow, find out if they made mistakes and which ones they did make. But it needs to be known if there was something done wrong for the future of wildland firefighters. You mentioned it took a few weeks for you after the incident. But also, I mean, I'm sure you've had some some form of PTSD. There's no question that has to happen after something like that. Yeah. How do you prevent the nightmares? How do you look ahead? How do you make it so, not just for yourself, but also, let's say, the firefighting community, for your daughter? How do you remember that in a productive way and then move ahead? It took me a while to figure that out. It, it, and I'm still learning it. And what has helped me the most is the counseling that I went through in, in writing this book at the same time. Because the counseling, what it did is it allowed me to face, once I was comfortable, it allowed me to face anything that was held within. And, and with that in itself, it's not going to stop the nightmares. It's not going to stop the anxiety you know, the symptoms of PTS, it, it's not going to completely get rid of it, but it's going to make it a lot easier to live with. And talking about things like the growth that the community has and will continue to have, you know, the wildland firefighting community and the knowledge will continue to grow, that gives me hope. The fact that I'm able to sit here and talk about getting help mm-hmm. and the kind of treatment that I had and I'm able to write about it in hopes of other people understanding that it's okay to get help and that you do have to be vulnerable to some pain. I mean, that I talk about my counseling and I try not make it sound too painful, but it was. I mean, I relived every single moment that I didn't want to talk about and it brought it all up. And, and I was fortunate in ways to be able to do that with the book because now I can look back and I, and I can truly look back and I can say to myself, I don't think there's one thing that I didn't confront that I wanted to. Brendan McDonough, the new book is called My Lost Brothers, The Untold Story by the Arnell Hill Fire's Lone Survivor. He'll be at Changing Hands Bookstore on Tuesday, May the 10th. Brendan, thanks for sharing your story with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And up next on Here and Now, we'll explore a play that brings together Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy. And then later this hour, comedian and actor David Cross. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by the Phoenix Boys Choir performing the happiest songs on earth. Music from the world of Disney, including classics from animated films. This Saturday at Mesa Community College. Info at phoenixboyschoir.org. 
Good morning. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now at 91.5 FM and streaming live at kjzz.org and on our mobile app. Well, a sunny and very warm day today for the Valley. Above average temperatures, to say the least. The average for today is 90, and we're looking for 102, according to the National Weather Service, who are also predicting winds up to 30 miles an hour this afternoon. Mostly sunny and breezy tomorrow, a little bit cooler, things dropping back down into the mid-90s. Stay with us in about 20 minutes. We've got NPRs here and now coming your way. Analysis of last night's Indiana primaries and where the presidential candidates go from here. And a mother who used her daughter's obituary to advocate for more awareness and services to fight drug abuse. Here and now from Boston starts at noon on KJZZ. Sunny skies, 94 degrees right now in Phoenix at 1141. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. When historical figures get together, interesting things usually happen. And what happens when those figures are talking about what makes human beings tick, why we exist, and what, if anything, comes next? That's what playwright Scott Carter explores in The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy, Discord. It's opening later this week at the Herberger Theater Center in downtown Phoenix as part of Arizona Theater Company's season. And Scott Carter joins me to talk about it. Scott, what do Jefferson, Dickens, and Tolstoy have in common? All three of them, in their own lifetimes, wrote their own very eccentric version of the Gospels. Jefferson, while president, over the course of three nights, gets the same edition of two different, two different copies of the same edition of the Bible, and then with a razor goes through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and cuts out the verses that he likes, and then gets rid of all the others. <laughs> And so he takes the bits from these four different books and then makes them into one narrative. And then this is in 1803, and then he uh, leaves the White House in March of 1809, goes back to Monticello. In 1820, six years before he dies, he dies on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Um, he, he decides to do this task again, but he makes it even more complicated. He gets two duplicate copies in Greek Latin, French, and English. So I worked with that for a few years, and then I found that Dickens had also written a Bible, and I saw the spine of a book that said Life of Our Lord by Charles Dickens, and I thought, I'd never heard that title before. And I thought I knew all of Dickens' books. And so I saw that he did the same thing, except all of his choices were different. He mainly does uh, from the book of Luke. He loves the miracles. His favorite word in the English language was fancy. And so anything that has pageantry and miracles and, and, and characters in them, he delights in that. And he made, a, he made this book for his children uh, after the fifth of his, eventually he had ten children. After the fifth of his children was born, he did this little exercise for himself. In 1998 was when I found out about Tolstoy and, it was, and, and, and that he had also done a gospel closer to Jefferson. And when I found that out, it was just this combination of your heart soaring, like, wow, okay, another guy's done the same thing and put them all together. And then your heart sinking because you realize it's going to take another three years for me to be able to know him well enough to fit him in with the other two who I've been reading a lot about. So, so, I, so I kind of started this in 1987, didn't get a first draft done until 2005. We have these three historical figures together, um, when they are gathered together, are they 
aware of each other? Are we entering the fact that each one knows the other is is a great they, philosopher, great writer, whatever it may be? Yeah, no, they don't. Um, well, it depends on when they lived. Right. So, so they are all in a limbo setting where each of the each of them thinks their path to salvation depends in 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 convincing the two that the other two are wrong. And so you have these three alpha males who are used to having their sway in any room they ever they've ever been in. And so for Jefferson, he doesn't know who Dickens is, doesn't know who Tolstoy is. Dickens knows Jefferson, but he doesn't know Tolstoy. Tolstoy actually saw Dickens perform once in London in 1843, but they never met. So Tolstoy knows who Dickens is. Tolstoy knows who Jefferson is. So the first part of the play is them kind of assessing each other and why the three of them might have been put together by some, for some supernatural purpose in, and, and contained in this one room why are they here? And then eventually they find out, oh, it's because we all wrote our own version of the Gospels. And the fact that discord, that word is part of the title, um, I wonder what, what are we supposed to think about that? Because it's one, it's one issue where, yes, we have different philosophies and we all want to talk about this, whether it's folks on stage or folks off stage, as you said, talking about these big questions. Uh, naturally, there would be discord, one would think, but discord also seems so negative. I would say that the first half hour of this is as funny as any comedy. Uh, I mean, it gets a little bit more uh, thought-provoking as it as it makes its way through the play. Mm-hmm. But but uh, but it it discord also the reason why it's there is because also there will eventually be a second play, and the last word of that will be harmony. Each of these people is sort of I don't know. It's almost like they have a they they are, they are preordained to be to be perfect uh each one to be a perfect nemesis to each to the other two uh, that they just don't mesh at all is it healthy for human beings cuz i do this a lot i think about what's what what are the big questions why am i here why are any of us here we're here to enjoy leisure we're here to help our fellow man we're here to have an impact but what are we here for what's the point and yet, it also seems to create um, a lot of a lot of neuroses. <laughs> and I wonder is it is it healthy for the human mind to, to always be asking these questions? I think uh, for certain kinds of minds, uh, they can't help it. There's there's a one point in the play where they're talking about whether or not what, what, what when they were on Earth, what their notions of heaven were. And uh, and Jefferson says, and this is a line of Jefferson, so it's not I can't take credit for it, but I think it's a beautiful line. He says, at some point, I stopped speculating on the afterlife and decided instead to rest my head on the pillow of ignorance that God made soft for me, knowing how often I should need to use it. Tolstoy was someone who was just tortured his whole life, and you might even, some people might even say it's sort of a liberal guilt that he was born with everything that, it, that, that society could give anyone, they gave to Tolstoy, that he was firstborn male that he was uh, born to a titled family. So from a bit, the time he was a child, he's Count Tolstoy. Um, he's, um, he's able to be educated. He's able to travel. He's able to own property. And yet he's, he wants to, he's very su- suicidal for most of his life. And that's why his search for God is a search to avoid killing himself. And uh, he can't help it. Dickens, on the other hand, is not very introspective at all, and, but Dickens is just this man of action. Dickens had a rule for himself that for every hour that he wrote, he would have to walk an hour, and he had a house 20 miles outside of London. He would often walk back and forth. Because this play blends humor and deep thoughts and deep philosophies, how often can any sort of laugh 
uh, and, and more than a knowing nod, like actually something that makes people laugh and express themselves. How often does that come out of serious stuff and, and the real heavy philosophical things that go on inside of our minds? I think all the time. I think that's the best that human thought can produce is, is a great thought that is summing up something that, that people instantly recognize as being true about life and summing it up in a way that is hilarious. Uh, I, I feel like there's nothing greater that, 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 that can be produced by anybody who writes. It's just, it's such a great thing. It's a great thing whenever, I mean, I remember when I first started working with Bill, one of the lines that he would always use, and it was in, in, embedded in our credit sequence first season, which was, uh, people, the problem that won't go away. <laughs> or another one, you know, yeah, and, and then that's something that you can just keep thinking about. People, the problem that will not go away, whenever you want to change anybody around you, and you, they have annoying qualities that you wish they would alter, they're not going to. Why? Because people are the problem that will not go away. <laughs> <laughs> they will always be with us. And the, and the sooner that you adjust to the realities of behavior just as the realities of nature and uh, surf with them rather than, uh, uh, than against them, then the happier your life is going to be. Playwright Scott Carter, the name of the play is The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy, Discord, and it opens officially on Saturday, May the 7th at Arizona Theatre Company in downtown Phoenix. There are preview performances on Thursday and Friday. Scott, thanks so much for digging in deep with me. It was nice to talk with you. Uh, It was a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Comedian David Cross is best known for his sketch comedy collaborations with Bob Odenkirk, who played Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad and is currently playing that character on Better Call Saul. Cross was also a big part of the ensemble cast of Arrested Development as a therapist who wanted to be an actor. My name is Dr. Tobias Fulke. I was chief resident of psychiatry at Mass General for two years and I did my fellowship in psycholinguistics at MIT. And this is I'm a Bad Bad Man from Annie Get Your Gun. Cross has also done stand-up for decades. All right, here's a question. What is going on with people who drink Coors Light? And their seeming inability to get the liquid that's in the can into them without some sort of disaster happening. What is the problem they're having that they can't get, they, they need these technological advances. And it's just Coors Light. It's not regular Coors. It's not any other beer. They had to come out with a cold activated can for these people. When the mountains turn blue, the beer's as cold as the Rockies. <laughs> now, when I want to know when something's cold. (laughs) Of the five senses available to me, I use the sense of touch. It has worked literally every single time. David Cross will be performing in the Valley on Friday at the Wild Horse Pass Casino with a tour called Making America Great Again. 
He says it doesn't have anything to do with Donald Trump, and he won't be wearing a red baseball cap. And David Cross joins me now. David, when you do stand-up now, are you putting together disparate material and putting it all together that way, or are you going with a theme? Well, it's, it, it can be both, really. It's always, I mean, what I've done the last uh, two tours is I just cull all the material that I've, I've gathered over the you know, five years or so, because uh, I, I never stop doing stand-up. I always do, you know, 15, 20-minute sets uh, at a friend show or, you know, something really informal or, you know, maybe some festival or drop-in or benefit or something like that. And then I just took all that stuff and created what I what I thought would be a good hour and change, say an hour and 15 minutes worth of material, and, and then try to structure it in in the best way as you go on and the the tour continues it evolves and i drop certain bits and other bits become expanded and and then there i wouldn't say it's thematic but they're definitely you know there's a feeling like oh this 15 minutes feels this way and then we segue into this 15 minutes which feels a little different I don't want to make everyone sound tormented when I ask this question, but there are some, there are some writers who say that they're good at it and, and there's some enjoyment from it, but others feel like, what would I do if I didn't do this? It's almost like, in some ways, it's this such a drive that some people who don't have it can't quite understand, whether it's creative, whether it's something in their psyche that they have to sort of get out. And I know, obviously, stand-up comedy, we hope, is more fun than that to some extent, but ultimately, is is the process about that? Are you someone who uh, feels like stand-up gives you something different, so it's something you want to keep doing? Oh, definitely. First of all, it's the first thing I ever did, and I will always keep going back to it. It's its own unique form of of comedy and expression, and it, it's uh, you know it's kind of narcissistic and self centered in a, in a way because you're saying that hey, I'm I'm worth listening to for you know an hour and twenty minutes, and to pay me money to do it. There's a bit of a narcissism to that, I think. You know, just that concept, but. It's also about, uh, because I do so many other things and uh, all things that I enjoy, whether it's acting in somebody else's script or creating my own character script or even writing and directing for other people, there's there's nothing that can replace, you know, this is just me. It's I'm on stage, live or die by it, and, uh, and it's the only way to express those certain things. Uh, so it's pretty liberating that way as well. There are a lot of people who've talked about kind of the golden age of TV drama, and they cite uh, Mad Men, Breaking Bad. I'm sure Better Call Saul is in that category. Is this a good time for TV comedy in the sense that there are, whether it's Amazon or Netflix, do you feel like there are more creative outlets for you? Is that good for the comedy business? Uh, well, there are more creative outlets. I mean, that's just a fact. You know, um, I mean, everything you cited, those things weren't around with their original content just four years ago. You know, so it's, uh, there's plenty. Um, and, and that is a good thing. I mean, it's, I think, fairly safe to say that most of the cream will rise to the top. There will probably be some, a handful of awesome shows that, that fly under the radar. Uh, and there'll be a handful of, you know, really lame, easy, stupid shows that, that, become successful. But for the most part, you know, the really good stuff is is found and shared. The comedy fan community is, is massive. Is there this dynamic of those of us who are outsiders and say, boy, that guy should be a quote-unquote star where everybody knows your name. Do you care about stuff like that? Uh, I mean, I'm quite happy with 
what I've achieved and what I've been able, what the opportunities I've been allowed to have. Um, I, I, I'd be lying if I if I didn't say that. Yeah, you know, I, I wish I wish there there was greater success. Uh, I wish I had the the opportunity to do everything I wanted to do, which is not the case. But um, you know, when all's said and done, I'm I'm quite happy with the the body of work that I've put out there and what I continue to do. A lot of people love the work you've done with Bob Odenkirk. And I want to come back to the collaboration thing. Do you guys click immediately? Do you hate some of his ideas, love some of his ideas? Is it, is it a normal sort of working relationship? Well, yes and no. Uh, we did not click together at all when we, uh, we met on the writing staff of the Ben Stiller show. And, uh, and Bob and I are very different people and we were much different back then than we are now. And we did not, you know, we didn't fight or anything, but we just, we were like two, you know, opposing magnets. We just didn't connect at all. And then it was much later and we had tons of mutual friends. The first spark was at this party. And uh, again, we were all, uh, you know, we weren't unfriendly. We just didn't, I never would have imagined we'd we'd collaborate someday, but um, was at this party. We just started riffing a bit that eventually kind of morphed into the one of the things from Mr. Show, early episode of the Bernie, the British TV spokesman and the, the super pan that you hit people with, whatever. Uh, it's, it's an old sketch. And we just sort of riffed that. And, and that was the first inclination that, oh, wow, this guy, we're really funny together. And then there was this place that we used to do sketch sketches, all of us for with each other for each other. And we all kind of had our own nights and, and Bob had his night and I had my night. And uh, we started writing for, you know, we were going to do a sketch on his show and then we were going to do that same sketch on my show. And we wrote a couple of things. And that, when we first sat down to write, that was the most instantly effortless kind of writing where we were, we were both just creating this really funny, cool thing. And, and again, we're very different people. We approach things differently, but we do, we're really good at taking each other's ideas and together making them uh, something that they they weren't and wouldn't be if it was uh, just written individually. I cut a rerun not that long ago of Modern Family, which is considered to be sort of the current mainstream successful sitcom. And you played a hilarious role. I can't remember how many episodes you were in, but is that good for you? Is that good for your for selling tickets and a stand-up to be on a show like that? Or did you actually admire the comedy they do? I wouldn't say... Either of those things, I hadn't seen very many episodes. I mean, it's a good show, and it's it, I, I I do like it, but um, I didn't think it was the greatest show of its time. Or, but then I feel that way about a lot of stuff. So um, I think things are things that are so highly rated and, and get all the Emmys. I'm like, really? Well, I can think of some better things. But um, was it a fun part though, at least to play? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody was cool. They let me improvise, which is always fun. And and I've always considered when you get to do something like that, when you're when you're just acting, that that's like a paid vacation for me. Comedian and actor David Cross will be bringing his stand-up tour to the Valley at the Wild Horse Pass Casino on Friday. He's also performing in Tucson on Thursday. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Special thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with surviving Granite Mountain hotshot Brendan McDonough or comedian and actor David Cross, our multi-pronged reaction to the state budget agreement, or 
even one of our previous programs. Please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. NPR's Here and Now is up next on member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. It's 12 o'clock. Have a great afternoon. KJZZ is supported by DannyZaliscoPresents.com, featuring Joan Baez November 1st at Celebrity Theater. Tickets on sale this Friday. Tickets for the Gypsy Kings August 18th at the Celebrity are on sale now. DannyZaliscoPresents.com. Thank you.